Black History Always, the podcast. As a 40-year-old man, rap music is basically my lifeblood. I'm just young enough that my older sister steeped me in the literal origins of the genre, but old enough that I don't have any friends who ain't hip-hop fans, because that's just what America is now. So this week, we're talking about rappers. First, I had a deeply personal conversation with David Dennis Jr. of The Undefeated about a rapper named Mac. You might remember him from his time with No Limit Records in the 2000s, and his hit, I Can Tell, was a definite Dirty Mac anthem, which I say with love. Mac, real name McKinley Phipps, was just granted clemency after decades in prison for a murder he did not commit. Second, me and the homie Justin Tinsley, also of The Undefeated, talked about his towering opus, King of Crenshaw, the 30 for 30 podcast about the life and times of Nipsey Hussle, the Los Angeles rapper who was gunned down in front of his own store in 2019. It was a moment that changed not just the music world, but the NBA too, and in many ways, black America as a whole. Lastly, we lost a titan in the business. Michael K. Williams passed this week, and we'll look back at his life and legacy as an actor and in Hollywood. It's been a heavy week, but the marathon continues. Joining me now is a man I call a friend and a tremendous journalist and quite the black American. His name is David Dennis Jr. Um... I want to start this call. I want to start this convo by saying that first of all, I'm so glad that you're a part of the team. I'm so glad that over the years of getting to know you, that like, I, I don't know, man, you're just really a bright, bright light in this thing that we do. You know, so that's that's first of all, man. How are you today? I'm good, man. I I really I really appreciate that, man. It's been I've been um, officially on the undefeated squad, which makes me, you know, officially your teammate for two months now, roughly, give or take. Um, and it's been it's been great. I mean, I've been sort of unofficial uh, undefeated family for a few years now, doing freelancing here and there. But to to be part of the squad and and sort of given the the assignments and the the you know, direction and all that stuff that I've been getting and, and being with a like really incredible team is, 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 uh, you know, is exhilarating. I'm really excited. Tell some people a little bit about your background who don't otherwise know. Okay. Uh, I was, um, you know, I'm a Mississippi kid born in, born in Louisiana, raised in Mississippi was, uh, went to the Davidson college for those who don't know. Um, you know, uh, started, as a hip hop journalist um, at the smoking section during the blog era, which, you know, one of the pivotal, mo- you know, eras in, in hip hop and hip hop journalism uh, made my way into the social justice space, the race and, and intersecting with a lot of things, including sports, which sort of got me on undefeated's radar. Um, and I've been sort of doing undefeated stuff as part of my freelancing with a lot of other places. But I think my first undefeated article went up, I think the second day the site was up or something like that. Um, and so, um, you know, just trying, you know, I got, I got a book coming out, I guess I should mention that, um, in May, uh, called the movement made us about my dad and his time in the civil rights movement. Um, but you know, it, it's really just, just trying to, you know, speak about the culture, um, where, you know, talk to the, to, to black folks really like talk to the black person in the room to make them feel like they're, they're less alone. So, um, you know, this, this is one of those spaces to do something like that. Headline. After 21 years in prison, former No Limit rapper Mac Phipps is figuring out what it means to be free. Now, the subhead, the deck says, Louisiana governor granted him clemency years after investigations raised questions about his conviction for manslaughter. 
The story is about a month old now. The reason why we're revisiting it is because it's important. Now, I'm going to ask you a couple questions from a journalistic standpoint, never mind a storytelling standpoint. And the first one is, how'd you come about this story, dog? So I, I knew about the Mac story years ago. Um, I mean, I think everybody sort of remember. Well, I, I, people in the Gulf Coast area, Mississippi, Louisiana, no limit fans remember Matt going to jail. Right. And I think the the belief at the time, I mean, he went to jail in 2001. So I think the belief at the time was, OK, another rapper shoots somebody, goes to jail. OK, you know what happens. Right. Um, and then in about 2012, I was in. I was living in New Orleans at the time. I did a feature on um, the rapper D1 and he had uh, linked up with Mac. Um, and, you know, Mac had been in jail for over a decade at the time. And so he was spending a lot of time um, revisiting Mac, you know, visiting Mac in jail, revisiting his case. And he was sort of explaining to me like this, this case is real sort of shady business, you know, um, as I'm, I'm sure we'll get into some of the the, the things that are, that are offered the case. And, and basically the idea is that Mac, you know, was in jail for a crime he did not commit. Um, and the story has just been sort of on my mind um, and on, on a lot of people's mind this whole time. He's been close to, um, you know, getting out, never has, you know, Huffington Post sent some folks down there in 2015 to find some, some inconsistencies with the case. Louder Than a Riot did something um, late last year that really delved into the case. And it just so happened, um, my first day at Undefeated was June 21st, and Mac's parole hearing was June 22nd. So I called uh, my editor, Steve, and was like, I think maybe a month or two before, and I was like, look, I, this, I want this to be my first story. Like, I want to um, figure out how to make this happen. I know it's like literally my second day of work, <laughs> but like, I want to go and see, I want to go to New Orleans. I want to see what's going on with this guy. Um, and it, it just so happened I was in New Orleans for a family trip and I had been saying I want to reach out to his folks. I know, you know, I knew his wife. I knew, you know, folks close to him. And the day I actually started the email to start the preliminary hearings of or the preliminary back and forth to talk to them and reach out to them. They emailed me that day and were like, look, Max coming out soon. You're somebody we really want. Um, would be interested to to get behind the story. And I was like, you can't be serious. I was wow. really about to ask you to do that today. Literally That's the today. ancestors talking right there. Right. You got to yeah, know right. that. So let's right. rewind a little bit. Now, Mac is a guy that in the No Limit roster is not the most memorable, if we're being honest, mm-hmm. from a national standpoint. You've mentioned the Gulf Coast background. Tell me a little bit about what you remember about Mac just as an artist in the era. So Mac, yeah, Mac was supposed was was really, I mean, in 1998, okay, No Limit Records was was the king of the world, right? And they dropped, I think, something like 50 records that year, right? So it's sort of easy to get to get lost in the sauce when yes. you're talking about Snoop, Mystical, um, Master P himself, Mia X, Tank, like some of these these larger releases. But Mac is, was always somebody, and, and his first album went gold, right? Which, you know, um, you know happens pretty easily now. But at the time, I mean, No Limit was just cranking out gold records. So he was one of the people who went gold. He had a couple of singles. He had some, you know, some features. But Mac was always known as the more, he was the lyrical representation of No Limit. Like No Limit had um, 
this reputation of being, you know, sort of simple lyrics, doing the uh, and you know, like they not were a lot of, of a gangster party crossover right. situation that wasn't really making you think, so to speak. Not that anybody had a problem with that, but that was definitely the vibe. Right. That's what a lot. Of, yeah. That's what what the feeling was. I mean, even though you know, Tank and Mia X, I feel like, uh, I mean, Fiend. I, I said Tank, Fiend and Mia X were, you know, two of the. You know, I think they, they can stand up lyrically to a lot of people, but, but I Mac was, I don't want to make yeah. this sound like they didn't have lyricists. I just right, feel like right. their overall appeal wasn't really right. doing that. The visual element of what they did, the mm-hmm. beat sounds, it was very different than I think what a lot of people were ready for at the time. Right, yeah. So there, there was that reputation, right? And Mac was the, I mean, everybody calls him Down South Nas. Like, he was the lyrical, you know, he, he his influence was Rakim. You know, he was double entendre. He was multi-syllabic rhyme. He was the he was to be the future of No Limit. I mean, he was just, um, you know, 2021 when his albums came out. And then, you know, everybody was sort of like he would be um, on the level, you know, bringing in that Southern lyricism in the way that Andre 3000 had and the way that, you know, T.I. got credit for doing things like that, I think. Mac was one of those people that everybody saw as, as as one of those guys coming up right right alongside them. So Mac's somewhere in the building. Things, I don't want to say go left, but the No Limit career doesn't exactly pan out the way that he wants it to. You know, mm-hmm. with something that is a case told many times in rap, you know, in terms of artists and their agency and what they can do. What happens that leads him to the career point where the night that changed his life goes on. So um, Mac is um, at this point um, to, you know, uh, early 2001, he is um, he's had two albums come out on no limit. First one went gold. Um, Second one, you know, did a few hundred thousand, um, but it did, it didn't live up to what he expected. Right. So he was ready to, sort of move on and do his own thing because, you know, Mac had always, he was a conscious sort of rapper, but when he joined No Limit, he sort of, you know, was making money, sort of blending into um, the No Limit sound, right? So he was talking about stuff that he really didn't feel the most comfortable talking about, right? He wanted to talk about real life things, right? And so um, he was sort of on his way to um, sort of an independent thing or starting his own label, and he had, you know, his parents are helping him manage, managing him and they're getting booking him shows and stuff. And so he ends up in a show um, in Slidell, Louisiana, um, in St. Tammany Parish, which had gotten the nickname St. Slamity for the way that they lock up black folks, you know, like it's nothing. Right. Let's stop there. He is a rapper who has been on No Limit, gone mm-hmm. independent. And he's got his mother and his father working uh-huh. with him on what I will call crudely the Chitlin circuit in terms mm-hmm. of what he's doing. I mean, this, I think, to 20, in, 20, in 2021 is something that a lot of people just don't understand about how rap works and never right. mind how black folks in the South works. Yeah, I mean, he was, you know, they, they he was on his way on a tour. He had just actually um, come from Jackson, Mississippi, where I where I was raised and so he was the next i think the next day he was leaving for a tour like they were you know he had a lot of popularity um yeah his mother was you know you know helping with stuff dad was helping with security his brother was helping security like this was a family affair 
um, where he was sort of getting it out the mud, like going back to, to, to the beginning and, and sort of, you know, finding his way. He's doing a show. A fight breaks out. One of the details that stood out to me tremendously in your story was that we weren't sure whether or not there was a real gunshot or a shot from a song. Mm-hmm. And that ends up causing a panic. And next thing you know, the cops are knocking at his door. How does he tell that story? Not just in terms of the details, but the feeling on his face and the sound of his voice. Yeah, I mean, he it, it's sort of like it's it's sort of like a lightning striking. Like it was it's, he just happened to be in the same room where something happened. Right. Um, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I, if you've been in a club, especially in the you know, in that era, the, the early 2000s, Lil John era, if there's a fight and you never know what's going to happen next, there, you can hear gunshots in the crowd. You can hear gunshots from the speakers. You sort of never know. It was it was sort of a mess, right? A melee, a mess. Um, Matt, when Matt gets home, he's not sure what happened. He knew there was a fight, knew there was probably a gunshot. Um, when he gets home, he finds out, you know, that somebody had gotten shot, Right. Um, and then a couple hours later, the police are at his door and they think he did it. Right. And so it's a thing where you're out one night, you're having a show, it goes left, there's a fight, which I, you know, I've, I've said like around that time I was in, you know, a couple years later, 2003, 2004, I was driving, I was in high school, starting college. And like, there was not a night where that stuff didn't happen. Where, this you know, was where the I, daily operation. This I think was what this it was. What people don't understand. This is not, you don't have to be rooted in violence to be right. in the club when cats are wilding and things pop off. Right. I mean, I wasn't, I mean, I'm not a street person. I wasn't doing nothing wrong, but I distinctly remember my freshman year at Davidson, there was a party and the lights cut on at 2 a.m. And I was like, you know, what's going on? They're like, well, the party's over at two. And I was like, I didn't even know parties. I didn't know there was an ending time for parties. Like for me, it was just parties ended when the fight broke out. You know, like I didn't know there was a like lights on disperse, go home and enjoy your day. Like that was not something I experienced as as uh, through my life, you know. So, yeah. So that was sort of a normal occurrence. And they were just like, you know, they were home. They were talking about it. They're like, you know, we got to stop doing these small events. We got to stop doing, you know, these type of venues next thing you know the police are there and they have a gun they have guns pointed at his dad you know and they're like we're looking for mckinley phipps for this for for shooting somebody you know we're talking with david dennis jr of the undefeated his story about no limits mac and how he's out on parole now is tremendous go check it out but this is why i specifically want to talk to you not just as the author but who you are the next step of this is where things get really hairy and where that feeling of just the racism that we deal with is almost overwhelming in terms of the steps of events. How he ends up in prison in terms of the story told, how relatable was that to you in terms of all of the things you knew about growing up in your household, which you've been around, your experiences with your dad and so forth. I imagine telling this part of the story was very difficult because I know how hard it was for me to read. Yeah, it was, you know, the, the visit itself to New Orleans, back up a little bit, the visit itself, I spent three days with Mac and his family, right? And I was sort of mentally preparing myself for what it would be like to be with somebody who would, I mean, he'd been out of jail for two weeks. He'd been a free, you know, in the world for two weeks after spending the last 21 years in jail. He's been in his 30s okay. and, and 20s and 30s in jail, right? 
So Mac himself is just this jovial, positive person, right? He just did not have, for the whole three days, he did not express any sort of anger, frustration at, at the situation, except when he talked about um, somebody else who was in jail, he would have been um, convicted of rape for, and he would have been in jail for 40 something years and the DNA proved him, you know, exonerated him, right? And so that's when he was upset about it. But for himself, he just sort of was jovial, right? So the first day, it was him, it was his wife, it was his stepdaughters, you know, it was like they were all sort of just in this space of positivity. And I was like, okay, this is not as hard as I thought it was going to be, right? And then the last day, I talked to his siblings, all five of his siblings and his parents who had been together in a space for the first time since the police handcuffed him and took him to questioning, right? And so hearing the siblings talk about what that experience is. I mean, you got an eight-year-old, you got a 10-year-old, I think 12, 15, and 19 or something like that. Young to talk about whole family, right? To talk about that experience of, of your brother going out for a show, he comes home, the police come, they ransack the house, right? They take him, take him away and he just, and he's gone, you know, and everybody knows that he did not do this. Right. And the, the PTSD of it, the stuff that they deal with, I mean, his little brother had eight, you know, was eight at the time. And he was wondering if the police were going to accidentally left, let his hamster out the cage, you know? Um, And the 10 year old was saying that he looks out the, he looked out the window and he's embarrassed because his bus is passing by. And he can't go to school and the kids are looking at the cop cars and he's, you know, like these are the things that you hold, right. That you just can't shake, even though he's out of jail and it's happy that he's out. You cannot shake the fact that 21 years was taken away from him and the family. Please do. Please do explain then what happened, because this was the part where I'm not going to lie, David, this became a difficult read for me because I started thinking to myself, sometimes when you think about the stuff that the ancestors and the elders tell us, which is don't be acting like that. Cause that's how they right. don't think we are. That's exactly what happened in terms of that vibe. We talked about that. No limit was pushing, which should not be something used against us. Right. What mm-hmm. was please explain right. to the folks what the steps were that eventually landed Mac in prison. Okay. So Mac, um, you know, they arrest Mac. And so back in the club, right. At, at one point, Mac pulls his gun out, right? Um, just because you're thinking there's a gunshot, he's looking for his mother, he pulls his gun out. He does not fire the gun, he puts it back in his pocket, right? The police take him to jail and Mac's most concerned, he knows he doesn't didn't shoot anybody. His concern is, how do I get out of here without a gun charge, right? He tells the police he doesn't have a gun and then he figures when the guy who gets shot will wake up from you know, a coma or whatever, get out the hospital, they'll say Mac didn't shoot him, right? So Mac finds out in interrogation that the guy um, is dead, right? And so he's like, okay, I got to, now I got to go to plan B. He takes them back home. He shows them his gun, right? He's ready, he's willing to eat a, a charge, a lesser charge and shows right. him the gun. It wasn't discharged. All the bullets are in there. The police tell him, you know, well, you must have, um, throwing the gun out the window or something like that. Right. So Max sits in jail for months. Then he has his trial. Right. At this point, everybody and a and couple I'm back up a little bit. A couple weeks after Mac goes um, is is arrested. Somebody else confesses, comes up. Somebody in Max 
um, family and in the security comes to the St. Tammany Parish, confesses to shooting um, and they let him go. Right. They're not concerned with with his confession. They don't do any follow up. They let him go. Um, Matt goes to trial. And despite the fact that there was conflicting um, evidence, there was conflicting witness reports. What the DA leans on, and the DA, who I must, who I, I need, must add, um, is serving a corruption sentence. Um, Important detail there. Right. You know what I'm right. saying? Legitimate abuse of power. Excuse me. Right. Go ahead. Yeah. So what they do is they do essentially two things to 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 really sway the jury. Right. One is they use Max lyrics. They splice up lyrics together where he's talking about. You know, I'm going to, you know, Mac, I think it's something like Mac will shoot you in the brain or something like that. The actual lyric is not even that. And second, the lyric is really in reference to his father, who was a Vietnam veteran. Right. So they splice this up to make it seem like Mac is a, is a killer. And then when they searched the house, they found all these guns. His dad was he did munitions in Vietnam. So he used to, you know, put the gun together and. and Guns were a part right. of his life serving the United States of America. Right. <laughs> right. Serving this country. Right. They take all the guns. They lay them out on the table. Right. And so I think maybe like six or eight guns. They lay them out on the table. They talk about Mac as, and using these lyrics. They lean in heavily to this. And, 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 and it can't it can't go without saying that at this time, Master P is buying up these houses in these very expensive white neighborhoods. Right. And he is, um, I interviewed Master P one point and he said he was next door neighbors to Burt Reynolds, right? Like Master P was buying these neighborhoods, buying these houses that black folks do not get to go in. Right. So there is that element of it too. Right. So they want Mac, they, they get Mac with all of these, you know, the guns, the lyrics, the jury convicts him of manslaughter on a 10 to two, um, verdict, right, which is something that was deemed, you know, split jury convictions is something that was deemed unconstitutional last year, right? And Louisiana at the time was, I think, one of two states that allowed you to have a non-unanimous verdict, right, of guilty. So they get a manslaughter instead of the murder two, um, and instead of not guilty. So somewhere right in the middle, and you know, you think, okay, manslaughter cover, you know, carries three to five, maybe, you know, 10 years, maybe you bargain down. They give him 30 years in jail for manslaughter, 30 years in jail. Um, you know, as Mac is in jail, they, you know, you learn that all of these witnesses have conflicting stories. And we find out that a lot of these witnesses were coerced to give their, their stories about Mac committing this crime. You know, he goes through 20 years. He can't get an exoneration. He still is not exonerated. He still is somebody who is guilty of a killing. We're talking with David Dennis. Black history always. Clinton Yates, the undefeated. Now, the reason why that Burt Reynolds detail matters and the reason why that whole denouement matters is because the overall message being sent by the criminal justice system there is y'all don't belong here. If y'all fuck up, we're throwing you in jail for the rest of your lives, and we want everybody to know. This is something you're familiar with personally, just in terms of everything. How familiar did that feel to you when you finally learned all of the stuff about everything that happened? Yeah, I mean, if I, you know, my my, fa- my dad, you know, has been arrested, you know, 
30 times. He was a freedom writer. He was, you know, an architect of the 1964 Freedom Summer, along with, you know, Bob Moses, rest in peace. You know, injustice is something that has been that this country has embedded into my family's bloodline. Like this is something that they have done to try and rid this country of my entire lineage. Right. Uh, my grandfather's land was stolen from him, you know, uh, my dad was raised on that, the, the you know, makeshift land that they had to live on. Um, you know, there is a story of my dad giving a speech in Shreveport, Louisiana, and um, these racists bombed the church where he was giving the speech. And the sheriff at the time in Shreveport telling the newspaper that he believed that my dad bombed his own church for sympathy for um, the movement, right? Like this is something that is not at all unfamiliar, right? And it's even more terrifying, especially when I talk to the parents and I think about, I have children, right? And, you know, I have a 15 year old and to think six years from now is the age of, you know, is, is the age Mac was when he went to jail, right? And so that feeling of helplessness of, I can't, I don't know exactly what, I don't know what to do to escape this. I don't know how to fight this. You know, we can talk about all the things that, that we do on a macro level, right, to fight injustice. But for Mac and his family and my dad and my family and those generations and countless other millions of families around this country deal with this, what do we do? Like what can be done? And at times it feels just absolutely hopeless. One of the things that really stood out to me as well was his time in jail excuse me, in prison and how he spent it. You went through all the different facilities that he mm -hmm. was at, including Angola, including places that you hear about on those TV shows where they be acting like these people are animals in a zoo to be watched. Mm -hmm. The harrowing moment comes when he's finally recognized for his service in the facilities. I did not know that that was even a thing. Mm. What was it like? And tell the folks a little bit about sort of his, I can't believe I'm saying this, his prison career overall before he was granted clemency. Yeah. So Mac's idea was that I could not get, and, and this is almost a direct quote. I couldn't get those 12 jurors to find me innocent. So I will use my actions to convince 12 million people that I am an innocent man, that I cannot be capable of doing this. Right. They made him look like a monster in the courtroom. So he's going to do whatever he can to, you know, escape that. Mac spent 21 years in jail and has no reprimands, no write-ups, right? Like that is not a common thing, especially in a system that they can write you up for anything, right? No write-ups, right? He started, he was doing um, community service and, and mentoring young, young men who came into jail pretty much, um, Everybody who all every all the men 23 and younger who went through um, his facility um, were mentored by Mac and the people he was with. Right. He was doing music. He learned how to play. You know, he was leading sort of the band in jail. And when his um, bass player got moved to another jail, he learned how to play the bass. When his piano player got moved, he learned how to play the piano. He was performing. He was sort of like it, it's one of those things that you it's almost like you got to, I had to fact, like we were, it was like, you got to fact check this because this is too good to be true. Right? right. And it's true. And so, um, 
a few years ago, he did receive a humanitarian award um, in the Elaine Hunt prison facility because of the stuff that he had done for all the people in jail, you know, um, while still serving this sentence. He strikes up a relationship with a human being who is also a helper. It turns into the moment where, David, this is where I started openly weeping. Mm -hmm. He ends up marrying her on the grounds, and his best man is somebody who we've all heard of and whose stage name kind of encapsulates the whole issue between artistry and expression, enforcement of so-called laws, like that part. I just that's where I was like I had to put the phone down. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Because it was such a wild full circle moment. I'm being general because I want you to be specific about one of I presume the happiest days of his life. Yeah, so um 2014 or so Mac meets Angelique who is, you know, she does PR but she also sort of brings awareness to some of these cases and things like that. Um, they strike up a relationship and get married, you know, um, a few years later uh, at Elaine Hunt, you know, her, she has, you know, she has kids, she, her two daughters were there. Um, C. Murder, who was serving, who got transferred to Elaine Hunt from years in Angola, which is, you know, one of the worst places you can be. Um, and he, um, you know, C. Murder's his best man. And C. Murder also, again, in jail under, you know, Sea Murder, who is a no, who is masterpiece brother, no limit records, you know, label mate, friends with Mac from before they were with the label, you know, um, that's his best man. And so, you know, Mac gets when he gets out of jail, he's living with Angelique and the two kids, and they have this impossible family. Like it is just like an impossibly happy family for a guy who's been out two weeks for you know two girls who have been you know, given these dead ends all this time for a woman who is raising a family and visiting her husband in jail and trying to, um, you know, keep it all together. It's impossible. It's and pretty they just amazing. All this love. <laughs> I mean, I, that was not, not that I sort of, sort of, sort of thought that I knew what the end of this tale was going to be, mm-hmm. but that was a hard left into not just improbability, but borderline impossibility and they've made it out of the other what was it like for you to be a part of that and see that again drawing on your background that's a movie dog and when you gonna write the movie (laughs) you know that's like i said the first those are the people i met the first day right and i was like man i like i thought this would be a really tough experience like this like having like i'm i'm a stepdad right like having teenagers is one thing, right? Like that is, that is a, a potential hellscape in itself, right? Being a step parent is, you know, has the same sort of obstacles to it. Right. And then to add on the fact that now you are spending time with them, you're living with them, right? You've been living with them for two weeks after like having to be the step parent from a jail cell. Right. And it it was like, it's like this can't be real. Like the 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 daughters are playing like J. Cole and Big Sean songs on the piano and like reciting poetry and like 
talking about criminal justice and how Matt got wronged and they have nicknames for each other and they love each other and he's laughing and he's just having a good time. It was like, take away the jail, right? Take away the, like even like just a regular family, there was more love than like you would think. And adding all this stuff, it is just an immaculate, it's a miracle that this, that they look and live like that. This is the last thing I'm going to ask you, and this is what I ask everybody who writes stories that change how I feel about myself. How did you feel about yourself, and what did you learn about yourself throughout this process of writing? Um, on, on a, on a super-duper personal level, I really learned that in doing these stories, I got to take better care of myself when, de- like when dealing with the emotions of these stories, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I spent three days in New Orleans and the second and third day I was sort of a mess, like trying to unpack the, you know, trying to, you know, when I talk, when I interviewed the siblings, I interviewed two one day and then three the next day. So when I interviewed the, you know, on the second day, um, it was the first time interview like that. I got choked up doing an interview. Right. Um, and I was trying to hold it together and it was because it was the first time that they had all sort of sat together and, and sort of talked through this together, you know? So it was like, they said, it felt like they were in a therapy session. And so I kept, you know, thinking about, you know, my kids thinking about, you know, my son is eight, you know, and thinking about just how in the middle of the night, the police can just come and just, you know, like we talk about, like we, we know the stories, uh, we know Mike Brown, you know, we know George Floyd. We know how the police can come in and kill you. Right. But they can take your life in a whole uh, in whole other ways that a lot of people don't even think about. And just the way that in the dead of the night, they could just come and snatch it away. Right. And so I, I and, and I just was not doing well with it. You know, like I was by myself in the hotel. There was yeah. a pandemic. I couldn't like go to a lot of places I wanted to go. You know, I was just sort of, you know, sitting at a bar eating food you know trying to watch basketball trying to do what i can but i just could not shake you know shake it so i think one of the things that i just got to find a way to like and and i came back and i just wrote for a week straight um you know i called steve my editor and i said look what is the what is the most amount of words i can write that you won't fire me that thing is long player <laughs> it's long I it's was a lot like, of words and got so, it for one yeah, it was a it was a lot of words. And so uh, but I just and, and he was like, you know, we usually do, you know, a couple thousand here, there. And I was like, all right, I'm sending you a draft of seven thousand tomorrow. So, right. So, right. And so, you know, and again, this is like my second assignment at, that I've that I've done it undefeated. So, um, yeah. So I think on, on that personal level, I just got to like like these things are tough, man. And, you and you know, you covered a lot of yeah. tough stuff and it it can impact you in a whole lot of ways that sometimes you don't even realize as you're doing it, you know, like you can find yourself slipping into unhealthy, you know, stuff. You get an extra glass of wine or extra glass of rum every night and, you know, or like, processes you, get, right. Yeah. And you can't shake it. You're in, you're present with your family, but you're sort of not. So, so the thing for me is just, was just trying to figure out, you know, next time when this happens, I gotta, I gotta be able to, care for myself too because because also like if you can't care for yourself like you're not going to do him and his family justice that they that they you know so he's david dennis jr he's one of the best we have he's the biggest Steph curry fan you'll ever meet 
Trust me. Thank you. I'm in. Appreciate you, brother. Black History Always, the podcast. Always the podcast. Here's Clinton Yates. Joining me is the homie, the God, and the, the the shine God. I can't even describe how big of a deal this man is these days. Justin <laughs> Tinsley, culture, sports, arguments about LeBron, everything. <laughs> JT, how you doing, brother? I'm good, man. It's a blessing to be here with you, brother. Thank you for having me on, man, for real. Of course. Now, your four-part podcast, 30 for 30, King of Crenshaw, dropped. You know, critical acclaim is not even the word. You know, and I just want to say thank you for being able to tell this story. And one of the things I want to do is get to this from more than just a storytelling standpoint, but a journalism standpoint. Now, let's start there. Number one, you describe a little bit in the beginning, in the first episode, about why this even came to be a thing. You had one conversation with Nipsey, this, that, and the third. I'm saying that respectfully. But as a journalist, when did you know this is how I'm going to do this from a podcast standpoint and getting the voices all in line so that you could do this correctly? You know, it's one of those things where, and, and, and you know this as a journalist yourself, Clinton, like the story kind of evolves over time. And, you know, this wasn't in the podcast. And so the idea was I wanted to do this story, this podcast, this series with Nipsey. You know what I mean? Uh, my my boy, Brian, who's actually in episode one, and the one who put me on in it, Nipsey, he called me in 2018. I forgot where, I forgot what story I was working on at that point, but I was, I just got off at Union Station in DC because I was coming back from New York. I, I have no clue what I was working on at the time, but I, I probably had to like track my stories and whatever. He, he hit me up and he was like, yo, would you be, are you interested in doing a story on Nipsey? Because my homegirl works for Atlantic Records and she's working with Nipsey and they're trying to get him some, some coverage right. uh, on different platforms. And I knew Nipsey was a big basketball fan because I knew he was close with, you know, guys like Russell Westbrook, James Harden, Isaiah Thomas, so on and so forth. And I was like, yeah, I actually would. I would love to do a story on Nipsey. I'm a big fan. You know, Victory Lap had just been recent, recently released at that point. And I was like, yeah, I, I'm actually listening to Victory Lap right now when he hit me up. And so one thing led to another. He introduced me to his homegirl. Her name is Brittany Bell. I think she's she she's got one of the greatest ears in the in the industry, and she's put me on to so much music. Like, so shout out to Brittany, right. like, okay. straight okay. up, like that's that's the homie, and she's really really good people. And, and so we came up with a loose idea to examine Nipsey's relationship with these guys in the NBA because it always felt like something more than oh 
famous rapper, famous basketball player. Let's take an Instagram picture, you know, pre or post game, whatever. Right. And it that that was loosely the idea. I don't I don't want to sit here and cap like, oh, we 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 were actually about to do the story, and then you know he lost his life. But I came up with some loose questions. If you look at my phone right now, if you go to my notes app, if you scroll back to to April 2018, it says Nipsey Hustle questions. And I, those are the questions I never got a chance to ask him because in 2018, he was super busy. It wasn't like I was twiddling my thumbs at the undefeated, you know? So it was just one of those things, man. And I said in the podcast, like the thing about time, the thing about time, rather, excuse me, the thing about time is you, you always think you have more of it. And I was like, ah, oh, well, you know, then he's busy. I'm busy. We'll eventually get to it. And, you know, unfortunately, he lost his life. And it was one of those things where I was like, he always preached about the concept of the marathon. I was like, I can't let this idea just collect dust on the shelf. I can't let it, you know, you know, basically just sit there in the corner. I have to do something with it. And so shout out to Kevin Meredith. Uh, yeah, you know what I mean? He told me, he was like, this is a good idea. You should pitch it to the people at, on, on the 30 for 30 team. And here we are now talking about it. <laughs> the rest is history, man. Well, you did a great yeah. job with it. I want to sort of break it down, you know, kind of episode to episode, if you will. The first yeah. one is about Los Angeles. You explained the path of how you ever came to his music. But one of the things that I found very just well executed was your ability to sort of put together different voices to tell the story about what gang violence meant, what gang life meant, what gang activity meant, and how that all related to the black community without making it poverty porn. It was very well explained, even to somebody that knows that and understands that. What did you do to take care and make sure that it didn't get too far in the other realm so that white folks, frankly, didn't listen to it and be like, that's what they be doing? Yeah. I mean, honestly, Clint, man, that's a really good question. And that's something that uh, when I initially pitched this to, you know, the 30 for 30 team, episode two was always going to be about growing up in L.A. And if you grow up in L.A., obviously you have to talk about, you know, the gang culture there. Like there's no way around, especially telling a story like Nipsey's. So I knew I wanted to tell that story, but I also knew that it it had to be like, extremely nuanced because when people hear gangs they think of one thing they think of the negative stereotypes which are part of that lifestyle like there's it would be disingenuous of me to talk about gang culture gang lifestyle and not mention the tragedy that goes along with that lifestyle but it would also be disingenuous of me as well to 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 not talk about you know you know, why people join gangs, you know, like once you step outside, it's right there. It's not like this isn't, you know, I, I tell people all the time and you'll get this, like gang culture is not Jack and Jill. It's not some affluent, <laughs> you know, secret society. Like, you know, like once you step outside, that's what you see. And it was kind of like, just because you're part of a gang doesn't make you this evil person. There's, there's evil people in all walks of life. You know what I mean? And yes, there are evil people that are associated with gangs, but you know, the thing about Nipsey that I always appreciated, he never shot away from that part of his life. And he always broke down the nuance and the the particulars of that lifestyle. And I knew if I told his story that I had to do it the same way. You know, I didn't want people to think like, oh, well, he was part of a gang and, you know, how he lost his life. He had he had it coming to him. Like, right. I hate I hate when people say that, 
You know what I mean? Because there, there's so many, there's so many particulars. There's so many nuances. There's so many, you know, it's a, it's a very unique lifestyle. And if you're not from that community, if, you, if you're not from that culture, you're always going to break it down into what the stereotypes tell you to say about it. And I did not want to do that with this. I think you did a very good job with that. But I'm going to ask you personally, I mean, you lived in Los Angeles for a while. So that had to, I don't want to say filter or season how you did this, but do you think this is a story you could have done had you not actually lived there and were just learning about this from afar or visiting from afar or working there? Like yeah. you were in the spot for a while. Yeah, no. part of who you were. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like I, it, that's a really good question, man. And honestly, no, I, I, I believe that everything that happened in my life, what I've experienced, what I saw, um, what I internalized, set me up to do this to do this podcast like i to answer your question no i don't think i could have told that story if i didn't live in la for a certain amount of time if i didn't go get my hair cut in compton and you know the barber's telling me hey be careful you know turning on this block don't wear this color to this barbershop and you know what i mean like it, it that that wasn't on me to to sit here and be like oh why can't i wear this color? like no this is their culture this is the lifestyle this is what they grew up in like it, it would be foolish of me to sit here and try to buck back at that. And, you know, just talking to people in L.A., just seeing different things, understanding different things. It gave me an appreciation and a perspective that that I that I carry with me throughout, throughout the entire process of doing this, because it's just like, yo, L.A. is not some, you know, fairy tale or some like mythical city. Like these are real stories that come out of this. city. These are real people. These are real, this is real success. This is real pain. Like these are real stories. And for me to try to tell that story and not understand what the climate is out there, I don't think I could have done that without having lived there for you. We're talking with Justin Tinsley of The Undefeated. Now, for those listening, the reason I said you started in LA, even though it's episode two, is because I live in LA and as a young brother who was in that generation, I always sort of think of home as to where it starts. And so for me, that the whole thing kind of kick-started in a different way at that point. Yeah. But back to episode one, you sort of lay the groundwork in terms of the NBA and yeah. those guys and how they linked to what Nipsey was and how he felt. And we talked to a lot of athletes. And I'm asking this question from a journalistic standpoint again. At the end, you get to it, and IT talks about it, but how hard was it to get these brothers to open up, just in general, about their friend, this topic, and where they are now? So, actually getting them to talk, you know, about Nipsey wasn't difficult. You know, you know, IT, shout out to Isaiah Thomas, man, one of the dopest people I've met you know, in, in this line of work. And I, I got nothing but love for that brother, man. He, he, he's always willing to do whatever I need in terms of a story. And especially when it comes to Nipsey. And that, that was kind of, that was kind of the key for everything. Everybody wanted to be a part of something that was paying homage to Nipsey. You know what I mean? Cause he, he was somebody that meant a lot to them, obviously. And you know, especially once they found out that the family gave their blessing. Obviously, Nipsey's older brother is a major player in the podcast series. Shout out to Black Sam. Once they found that out, they were like, yo, let's do it. 
Now, once we once we got to the interview, it was one of those things where it's one thing to talk about Nipsey, but it's another thing to like really open up. And so maybe like the first 10, 15 minutes of the interview was kind of like, all right, let me get the, you know, you, you asked the 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 wide sweeping questions like when did you meet him like how would you describe him as a friend and then once they got more comfortable talking about him that's when you know you get the quotes from like boogie cousins and he's like yo nip was my superhero like and you know one of my closest friends was close friends with nipsey and x y and z and so maybe about like 20, 25, 30 minutes into the interview, you could really start to see these guys open up. And, and in a way, I think it was therapeutic for them because they don't really talk on the on, on the record, at least. They don't really talk on the record about, about Nipsey. This is something that they're, they're still trying to process. They're still learning what grief is. And, you know, because they see Nipsey everywhere. Right. You know what I mean? Like, they see him everywhere. And they hear his music. They hear his interviews. And to talk about him in such an emotional and vulnerable manner. It, it, I, it, it, told me and DeMar told me straight up, he was like, thank you for doing this. He's like, I haven't really spoke about him like that. Like that, that was one of my closest friends. Like this, this isn't, you know, if you listen, if you listen to the podcast, obviously you have, but I'm just saying for for people who haven't listened to the podcast yet, what you'll understand is like, yo, this was a close friend. This is somebody who meant a lot to these guys. Somebody who they drew inspiration from. They they had a genuine love for. And so when I asked IT, I was like, yo, have you cried over Nipsey? And he was like, no, nah, I haven't cried, but I just go into a real blank space. He's like, when you look at NBA players, you, you kind of figure like, oh, they'll they'll have the answer to whatever question I ask them. But like, when you ask them, like, how much do you miss Nipsey? And it's one of those things like you can't see it in a podcast because it's audio only. But like when right. you're doing the interview, you see the look on their face change. You see like the jaw clench up a little bit, and you see them like look at the ceiling, try to gather their thoughts. You see the emotion that goes in to their answers when it, when it's about Nipsey Hussle, man. And I, I, I thank them so much for being, for opening up to me, trusting me to tell this story in a way that not only respects Nipsey, but respects their grieving process as well. I think to that point, one of the most interesting, again, storytelling devices that you used was you had them all explain exactly how they came to when they met and how they interacted with Nipsey. Nobody acted like, oh, we all grew up together playing ball. You, you connected those dots. And I thought, it was, I thought it was such a sort of revealing look at how our culture can really come to know each other, even though we are not necessarily eating the same food or going to the same school. Of like minds, they find a way to connect, and that had to be very revelatory to you. Yeah, I mean... It's, it's one thing, like, obviously, we didn't go to the same school. We didn't grow up in the same neighborhood. Like, you're from D.C. I'm from, like, Central Virginia. <laughs> like, Clinton, you know, like, <laughs> shared life experience, especially amongst Black people, that's what ties us together. Like, I saw, I saw a really funny tweet yesterday. I, I don't know if I retweeted it or not, but it was something like, like, 
it was this girl, she tweeted, she was black, of course. And she was like, why, why black folks always think I ain't forgot about you as a form of payment? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Yo, that's real true, though. You know, people really always true. saying stuff like that. That's funny. I ain't, Clint, I ain't forgot about you. Yeah. <laughs> run me my money. But, but you know, I say all that to say, like, share life experiences are that they, they bring you together. You know what I mean? And, you know, rap and basketball, as, as is described in the podcast, they've always been interlocked. And it was it was a mutual admiration. But even deeper than that, it was mutual respect. It was like, hey, look. You was over here doing your thing, trying to, you know, blossom in, in the rap world. I'm over here in the gym 14 hours a day trying to hone my skills and do this. But a, a, a lot of times our, our paths cross and I respect what you're doing because I know how much work you had to do to to get to where you are. And I know how much work you had to do to even get drafted. Episode three, Songs in the Key of Life. You get into the music side a little deeper. You're a guy that's covered the music industry for a long time. You're a big fan of music, obviously. For Is sure. there anything that you learned about the industry that maybe you didn't know, even as a veteran, in terms of what you figured out about Nip telling his story and how he went through all what he went through to finally get where he was. It's one of those things where I knew, I understood Nipsey's journey and I knew how long and how hard he worked to get to where, you know, he eventually got to. But it's like one of those things where you know it, but you don't understand, you know, the level, like, damn, like he really, that, like that, that marathon stuff is real. Mm. And I, you know, I, I didn't know initially about the studio getting rated. I didn't know about like, you know, like he, he really had a lot of opportunities to just be like, you know what, forget this man. Like, I'm just going back to the block. I'm gonna just do what I do there. Like his dedication and his commitment to his passion what what he felt what he felt like was his life calling was very inspirational to me. It was very inspirational because I I saw a lot of parallels to to myself, and I think at the end of the day, that's what the marathon is all about. You know, find find finding your place, understanding your journey, and understanding that like yo, this thing ain't gonna happen overnight. And for, for you can call Nipsey Hussle a lot of things, you can't call him an overnight success because it was anything but that, and so. I think it was just a deeper understanding of what his journey actually entailed and how much commitment, uh, you know, he had to place, he, he had to put in place for that. I think one of the things about, this is going to sound weird, but what's hard about storytelling is that when people already know what's going to happen, you have to find a way to bring them in, in a manner that allows them to stay interested, even though they know the so-called end and I got to tell you, the part of the pod where you talk about how he went from sort of boutique rapper, yeah. known guy, and that last time that I checked, B slides in there, and then yeah. all of a sudden that thing kicks off. I was like, oh, my God, Tinsley, you did it. Like, and that song <laughs> is so good. And that particular part, I think it, it embodies more than just a song that I like, a part 
in in his life, it was just it it made so much sense in the context of the story you were telling, the story of the reality and the dopeness of that track. You know what I'm yeah. saying? That was a masterstroke, my man. I just needed to say that. No, I I, I think I think I, I always enjoy backstories to stuff. Like everybody knows everybody knows last time that I checked slaps. Like yes. that's that's not a question. But then to understand how it came to be and to have somebody like DJ Head, who's who is an incredible interview for the record. Legend. Like a yeah, legend, man, super legend. And, and have him tell the backstory of that song from his perspective. You hear you hear the album differently now. He's just like, yo, I like it it, it, it slaps for a reason because it's kind of like, yo, you gotta you, you gotta make a heater, you gotta make a banger. And Nipsey was like, All right, cool, I got you. So I, I love it, man. I, I Every time I listen to that episode, and that that beat drops. I'm like, yeah, right. That, that's the you know one. What I'm saying? I never thought I'd that's be bobbing my head to a podcast, even though it was about music. I, I just to stick on that episode. And one of the things that I think about a lot these days is like, you know how how good of a rapper was Nipsey? Because there's lyricism. There's guys that write about life. I oftentimes think, and we talk about this with legends all the time. How long do we think Nipsey would have rapped? How long would this have gone on like this? When you think back on his musical career, what's a word you would use to describe it? I don't say I don't want to say taking away his life, but like his actual music, where does that sit for you on the all-time scale? You know, that's a it's a really good question. I was actually talking about it with one of my homeboys the other day. Like, I don't know where I would place Nipsey on the pantheon of like all time great rappers. He's definitely one of my favorites. Right. It, 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 the thing about Nipsey is his lyrics were fire, but he wasn't quote unquote a lyrical rapper. It was, it, it, you know, we talk today, and I, I think you know today is the 25th anniversary of Tupac getting shot, yes. and there's a lot of parallels to Tupac. In Nipsey, Tupac wasn't the most lyrical rapper of all time, but when you heard his music, when you listened to his music, you're like, oh, he felt that. Like he painted a picture with not just his words, but but his emotion. And in the same thing, same thing with Nipsey. You know what I mean? Like Nipsey was the same exact way. Like when you listen to songs like Ocean Views or or, or a song like Picture Me Rolling, they're not the most lyrical things in the world, but you hear the passion that he puts into it. So. I have to say he he was one of the most emotional rappers uh, of my lifetime. And when I say emotional, I don't mean like emo or anything like that. No, but no. It's just like just like when you hear his music, you're like, yo, this is coming from a very real place. And these are coming from very real experiences. And I think that's as a musician, as an artist or a, as a creative, as a creative in general, like I think that's the highest compliment I can pay him. Justin Tinsley of the Undefeated. 30 for 30 podcast, King of Crenshaw. If you haven't seen the billboards, what are you doing? Man's is famous <laughs> out here. I'm only getting hyped because the last episode is one that really hit home for me. The whole community element of what he did. I think a lot of people saw that and were just like, oh, well, he just must have been one of those nice guys that thought, okay, if I sell a couple things in a hood, it's going to be all good. Way deeper than that. You referenced yeah. Davey D's interview with him which I remember when I first saw that wasn't at the time but I thought like there were a couple sides to that which were first of all how forefront how forthright 
Nipsey was with his. He came out and straight told him. He's like, listen, I'm not dissing nobody, but this is what I do. Davey was kind of shocked in a way that was almost, when you look back on it, it was kind of weird. It was because you were like, well, okay, well, sure. He's a like-minded, he's a, he's a smart guy, but I don't think people looked at that as much more than just, well, he's a community activist because he's from the hood. It was a little more than that in terms of reaching to different communities for different reasons. How did you, how did you portray that or make sure that you did that in a way that was honest to the effort as opposed to just putting shine on what was on the outside window? Yeah. I mean, if you listen to Nipsey, you listen to his music, you listen to his interview, interview you understand what his, uh, his, his intentions were when he was alive. Everything about him bled back to the corner of Crenshaw and Sloss. Everything about him bled back to South LA or South Central, whatever, whatever, whatever you want to call it these days. And I knew that I couldn't just do a gloss over of like, oh, yeah, this guy was active in his community and this is why it's sad. Like I had to do an honest job. I had to do a very authentic job in, you know, like 40 minutes, you know, that I had. Uh, I didn't want to do anything that would belittle or not do justice to what he was doing in his community because his community meant everything to him, meant everything to him. Like, I I think a lot of people don't understand. It's just like, they, they know, but I don't know if they understand it. Like, the power of where he lost his life. He lost his life standing on the ground that he owned. When the ground that, you know, he used to hustle out of that parking lot, he got shot at and shot people or shot at people in that parking lot, beat up people in that parking lot. You know, the police hounded him in that parking lot. And, and whatever, you know, whatever, hurdles he had in his life, it all bled back to the corner of Crenshaw and Slauson. And I knew that if I was going to tell that story, you can't just, you know what I mean? Excuse my language. You can't just half-ass it. Right. You know what I mean, like, if you're going to tell the story, you got to tell the story. And you got to tell the story of how how it began, where it was at, the, at that point in time, you know, when he lost his life, and what it could potentially look like in the future. Because you can't just talk about Nipsey Hussle and just talk about his music. You can't just talk about Nipsey Hussle and talk about, you know, you know, being part of the Rolling Sixties Crips. You got to talk about Nipsey Hussle as a fully formed, fully fleshed out human being. And you can't do that if you don't do justice to what he was doing in his community. And that's why, you know, that last episode, I, I, I wanted that last episode to be the last episode because I wanted to, I want, I wanted people to understand that like, this dude just wasn't active in his community. He genuinely loved his community. And what and that community will always love him for until the end of time. So last thing I'll ask you, and this is what I ask every single person who does a project that changes me. What did you learn about yourself during this process? Man, so much of this process was about understanding what grief looked like. You know, I, I, I love Nipsey Hussle. I'll, I'll always love him, but I didn't realize how much I didn't unpack from his death. And there were so many interviews that we did that had people in tears, in tears, talking about it, talking about him, excuse me. Right. And 
that got me emotional. And there were, there, were, there, were, there were plenty of times I did interviews, we ended them, and I would just sit in my room and I would just like look at the ceiling like, this is heavy, man. This is, this is really, really heavy. And, you know, he was, he was such a good guy. Did he make mistakes in his life? Sure, we all do. Like that, but he was somebody who impacted so many people, bro. Like the, it, I, I, at the end of our lives, we all want people to speak about us the way that people speak about Nipsey Hussle. And that was, that, that meant a lot to me. So like when I spoke to Black Sam and after our interview, which was like four hours long, you know what I mean? Like, right. cause he, he opened up to me in ways that I, I would never, I can never truly repay him for But he, after the interview was over, like we were just talking a little bit and he was like, yo, thank you for doing this. He was like, I don't really talk to, I don't talk to too many people. I don't trust too many people, especially when it comes to my little brother. He said, but I think, I know rather, I know you're doing this with good intentions and you only want to pay homage to my little brother. You only want to just continue his marathon, as he would say. And I was like, yo, I, I know people like the clout chase nowadays. Like I'm not getting paid extra to do this with ESPN. This is, you know, part of my contract. So I don't, I don't right. get anything from it. The only thing I get from it is just being attached to this man's legacy and hopefully in a, in a, in a positive and a progressive manner. So what I learned the most from it is stories matter, bro. Stories matter, man. And like the emotion that goes into it. And this isn't just a podcast to, to listen to for the sake of listening to a podcast, man. This is somebody's little brother. It's somebody's father. You like, I, I think about his kids, like, you know, when his kids get older, obviously his daughter is like 11 or 12 now or something like that. But, you know, his son is still still, still young. But I don't know if they've listened to this podcast, but whenever they do, if they do, I want them to listen to it and be like, yo, he did right by my dad. You know what I mean? Like, this is, this is dope. And if I can do that, then whatever acclaim, whatever ad- adulation comes from this, that that pales in the comparison to that. I've said it before. I'll say it again. It's a masterpiece. And as far as I'm concerned, it's the best thing we've ever done at the undefeated. Justin, thank you so much for your time and your effort and your love. Thank you, bro. Thank you so much for having me on, man. Black History Always, the podcast. History Always, the podcast. Here's Clinton Yates. Michael Kenneth Williams was an American actor. He was most widely known for his role as Omar Little on HBO's The Wire and Chalky on Boardwalk Empire. 
but the man was one of many talents and wide interests. Beyond that, he was a person who legitimately cared about his people and was a community man who gave back. The outpouring of love for Williams after his death was sobering and real. Here's actor Wendell Pierce speaking with the press standing right next to his fellow actor. You know, I think I crossed the line with, you know, my real life and Omar's uh, 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 fictional life. But I had to, you know, I learned now how to, how to separate the fictional world from my real life. But it, it was a, it, the lines got a little gray because I, I was a little green in the, in the early process of that. Well, he, he may say that he was green, but Michael has contributed two of the most iconic characters in the history of American television with Omar and with Chalky White. What we are actually getting to witness in his young career, we're going to see a lot more, is like one of the great American actors giving voice and giving flesh to uh, characters that most people would have never given the same humanity to, of giving, uh, opening a window to a world of men that we pass by or don't know about. It's one of the most innovative portrayals on television uh, in, in our generation, and I, it was an honor, an honor for me to even share the screen with him. One of the greatest moments I've ever had in my career was the scenes that I did with Michael. He's a very special man, very special artist, and what artists to the community, thoughts are to the individual, it's the place where we reflect on who we are, and he has opened up a window of reflection to people who may pass people on the corner that they would have never given humanity to, that he has made people think twice and give humanity to these men. And that's classic American television history right there, Michael K. Williams. At Marlowe NYC, whose senior entertainment editor for The Daily Beast wrote, My favorite interview with Michael K. Williams was on Latifah's show. They've been friends since they were 17, and he discussed how Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation video made him get into showbiz. Then Latifah pulled up a clip from his days as a backup dancer. One day I was, I was, I had, you know, when I, I got a job, went to school, and I was like, okay, I'm going to make my mom's hat, you know, make my mom's proud. And my mom's, my mom's a hardworking woman, man. She, she worked hard to, to, to take care of us the projects. And, um... I saw a Janet Jackson video and lost my mind. It was Rhythm Nation. Yeah. And I was like, and then my light bulb went off. I was like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go and become a backup dancer for Janet Jackson. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I found my niche. I, you know, that never happened. I never got to dance for Janet Jackson. But, you know, I did uh, have a, a pretty good career as a dancer. I got to travel the world and work with a lot of beautiful people. And... You know, but that that inspiration, the fact that I can even think about that, it came from watching you become Queen Latifah. That was like, you know what? But you re-inspired me through the years. This been really cool. I remember you, uh, you choreographed Crystal Waters' video 100%. Yes, I did. Right? Yeah. Shout out to Crystal Waters. Shout out to Crystal Waters. We had a clip of that too, by the way. Uh oh. All right. Here he comes. There he is. From at Judd Nicky, a TV writer and producer, she said, Michael K. Williams grew up in Vanderveer Projects. Flatbush Gardens is some gentrified-ish. Don't erase the block. And lastly, from comedian Roy Wood Jr. All I want for black entertainers is for them to be able to grow old. Amen, brother. 
Thanks for listening to Black History Always. Follow us wherever you listen to podcasts.